chapter 33 of the book of Exodus, and let's just pray, and we're going we're gonna to jump right in, guys. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your love for us, God. Who are we that you would know our names, that you would care about us? And after all that we've done and the depths of our sin, and yet you are so committed and in love with us, and you demonstrated it. And I just pray that you would minister that to us right now, that though we've had a good week or maybe we've had a bad week, it has not changed the way you love us. And we just want to bask in that, and we also want to grow in our understanding of your word and truth. And, and um, so, Lord, would you use your word? Would you make the words jump off the page and come alive to us and cause us to really go deeper into you, remind us of things we already know, and maybe teach us some stuff that we don't know yet? For the glory of Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, I think a lot of you guys have been tracking with us verse by verse going through the book of Exodus. And we last week wrapped up a pretty gnarly chapter, an intense chapter, drama-filled chapter. And here's Moses up on the mountain in the presence of God. Down in the valley are the children of Israel, and they just absolutely bottom out. I mean, just this apostasy where they are just going no holds barred, full-on debauchery, and Moses comes off the mountain. It culminates in this, you know, this scene where Moses takes the actual written on stone Ten Commandments and smashes them down physically in front of the people, symbolizing, like, physically what they were doing in reality. Like, they were, like, simultaneously breaking them all right then and there. And God was like, you know, I'm going to smoke all of them, and I'm going to make a great nation out of you, Moses. And it was just this crazy thing, and it culminated with Moses interceding and God relenting and saying, okay, I'm not going to smoke them. Um, but, you know, you know, he's just, we talked about that. But he did punish them, and it ends, this chapter ends, guys, with 3,000 people being killed on day one of the law. <laughs> and we talked about that. On day one of the giving of the law, 3,000 people died. And then we talked about, as we ended last week, how contrast that with the day of Pentecost on the first day of the church when the Holy Spirit came and 3,000 people got saved. And it just shows you right from the get-go concerning the law that there had to be a better covenant. There was nothing wrong with the law. The problem was, was always, and always has been, always will be, our inability to keep it. The law is perfect, Paul says, but I'm sold under slavery to sin. And so right from day one, we see the need for a new covenant and, and what Jesus would do in fulfilling the law and then dying for our inability to keep it. So an intense chapter. And so it, chapter 33 just flows right out of chapter 32. It's still the kind of the same scene. It's a shorter chapter, but packed. So let's go into it. There's three main movements to put it like that in this chapter. We're going to see God kind of give a commandment for them to start leaving, and then we'll just kind of go from there. Let's look at verse 1 together. It says this. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. Verse 2, and I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. 
go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, because you are a stiff-necked people. So at the end of chapter 32, God said, hold the phone. I'm going to go back up to God, see if he'll make atonement, and he'll talk, you know, I'll pray. And, and he has this interaction with God, and God says, okay, it's time to move on from Mount Sinai. Now, um, they've been camped here for 11 months and 29 days. And God says, it's time to move on. Now, we're not actually going to read about them moving on until, really, Numbers chapter 10. But this is the initial, like, God's getting them ready. Hey, enough time here. It's time to get going. And, and just want you to notice this. He says, to the land that I promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to the land flowing with milk and honey. And you're going to dispossess all the ites that we read about, the Canaanites. And I just wanted to remind you, since we're being reminded, guys, that was always God's goal. We have to remember that. God brought the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt not to just bring them out into the wilderness to die. The end game was always to get them out of Egypt, through the desert, and into the land of promise. When we talk about the promised land, if you're not super familiar with that, what we're referring to is hundreds of years earlier, God had made a promise to a man named Abraham that from him would be a nation, would come from his loins, and we see that fulfilled. Here's the nation right here. Ultimately, the Christ would come through his family line. But also part of that covenant was real estate. I'm going to physically give you this land that we would call Israel today. Now, there was kind of a hold on that because God was dealing with those pagan nations while they were in Egypt. But the time has come for them to go into that land, dispossess those guys, and walk into all that God had promised them. Amen? Now, the reason I'm just taking a couple minutes on that is because just like that was the end game for the children of Israel, it's the end game for you and I as well, spiritually speaking. Just as Egypt spiritually speaks of slavery to sin, and they were saved by the blood of a lamb, we were saved by the blood of the lamb, Jesus, out of Egypt, so to speak, spiritual Egypt. Listen, God's intent is not to leave us in some spiritual no-man's land, some desert experience, God wants to move his people into the land flowing with milk and honey. Now, some people have always kind of, as far as Bible typology goes, made that into like heaven. And that's, I mean, yes, we're all destined to heaven, but strictly speaking, the promised land doesn't speak of heaven. It speaks of the spirit-filled, abundant, victorious life in Christ, flowing with the abundance and the fruit that comes from the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And I, I just bring that up because, listen, so many Christians, I was one of them for a long time, think that the whole thing is, well, I'm saved, I'm not going to hell. But they spend their lives just going in circles, spinning their wheels in this dry, lame Christian experience. Just like, I don't mean to spoil the story if you haven't read it. That's what they're going to do. They're going to be in the desert for another 38 years until this whole generation dies. That's a whole other story. But that is not... That was never God's intention. It's not God's intention for you and I. He wants us to be filled with the Spirit, walking in the Spirit. He says in Ephesians 1 that we've already been blessed with all the spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, and we're to walk in those. Amen? Amen. If your Christian experience is one of just dry, dreary lameness, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> That's not what God intended for us. I'm not talking about physical prosperity 
kind of teaching, I'm talking about spiritual blessings and abundance, and that's just kind of a little taste. But back to the story. So that was the good news. Moses, I'm not going to kill everybody, and you are going to the land, but did you notice verse 3? But he basically says, my presence isn't going to go with you. See, originally he said, I'll be in the midst of you. But he says, now I'm not going to be in the midst of you. But I will send an angel to go with you. Well, look at verse 4. When the people heard this disastrous, or I think another translation says evil word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You're a stiff-necked people, stubborn. If a, for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Verse 6, Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb or Sinai onward. Now this is interesting. What's going on here? Evidently, when the people heard the news that God had declared to Moses, I'm not going to be in the midst of you. I'll send an angel, but my presence isn't going to be among you. That did something to them. It seems as though it would seem like there was a real repentance that took place. Like they were mourning. Like, what do you mean God's not going to go with us? And they didn't put their ornaments on. Now, uh, the ornaments speak of like their earrings, their jewelry. Keep in mind, they're still fresh out of Egypt. They look Egyptian. They don't look what you would think of a Hebrew person looks like. They look like Egyptians at this point. But listen, in that culture, when someone died, it was a sign of mourning to not ornate yourself. For us, it would be kind of like wearing black, you know, for a, a period of time. You're in mourning. For them, when they were mourning something, they just wouldn't put the ornaments on. And so this outward expression of not putting those ornaments on was demonstrating somewhat of a real repentance. Now, we know they kind of tank again later, but it, it seems as though there's a real kind of like, oh, my goodness. Now, real quick on that. They already have been busted. 3,000 people have died. But now when God says, I'm not going with you, it's almost like a reality check just hits him in the face. I was just seeing if you're awake. Has that ever happened to you guys, by the way? Oh, you know you sinned. And you know you're wrong. But then time starts to go. And you realize that the repercussions of what you've done are actually way worse and more severe, and you've grieved God more than you at first realize, and the heaviness sets in. And guys, that can be a good thing. You know, Corinthians, Paul talks about a godly sorrow that leads to repentance not to be repented of, as opposed to a worldly repentance that actually leads to death, or a worldly sorrow, excuse me, which is in essence, I'm sorry I got caught, versus I'm sorry I sinned against God. And there's a world of difference in between the two. And so it seems as though that, that's what is happening here. Now, little phrase before we move on that I think is interesting. Look at the last phrase. It actually says, from Mount Horeb onward. In other words, it would seem that from this moment forward, they never put their ornaments back on again. Which speaks of, again, true repentance. We're not going back to that. And I was thinking about it in this realm, too. Track with me for just a second. What did those ornaments do? It identified them as Egyptian, didn't it? You guys track it with me? 
They, it was all Egyptian garb. And so when they put that stuff on, it, would kind of, it was like a throwback to their Egyptian roots. But from this point on, they're like, you know what? We're not putting that stuff on anymore. And there's got to come a day in the life of a believer where we say, you know what? From this day onward, I'm not putting that on anymore. Check out later when you get a chance. Just read through Colossians chapter 3 where Paul talks about putting to death the deeds of the flesh, spirit, you know, um, sexual immorality and covetousness and all these things. He says, put the old man off. And he's referring to almost like, a, like clothes, like take the dirty, like it's almost like if you came to church right after work and you were all greasy and dirty. I don't know if anybody would do that. Um, Where's Nathaniel? I'm just kidding. Where are you at? <laughs> but, but just like, just imagine your clothes are just filthy, dirty, gross, and you're like, you go and you take a shower, and you're like, oh, squeaky clean, and then you go put those, you don't go put those dirty clothes back on. Well, guys, we've been made squeaky clean by the blood of Jesus. How lame would it be to go put on the old stuff that we used to do? He says, put on the new you. Amen? I love that. So kind of a picture of that here. From this point on, no more Egyptian garb. They're not going to look that way. They're not going to identify with that anymore. They're God's people. I like that. Well, moving on. Now, verse 7. Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And um, he called the tent the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and they would watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of the cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak to Moses. Um, and it says in verse 10, when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship or literally bow themselves down, each at his tent door. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. This is a great little chunk right here. There's a lot in this. So don't get this confused. I know that when I used to read this, especially if you're reading in the King James, I think it calls it the tabernacle, right? And we've just spent months, chapters, studying about the plans for this special tent called the tabernacle. Well, that ha hasn't been built yet. That hasn't been constructed yet. What's being described here is not the tabernacle. It's a tabernacle. The word tabernacle just means tent. And so when God said, look, I'm not going to be in the midst of you, it's almost like he put a contingency plan in. He said, but you can set up this tent way outside of camp. So way outside of camp, they set up this little tent, and I always, I don't know why, I always have like this seven-man like camp, like Coleman tent in my mind. It's probably something more like what's out here. I don't know what it was. There's no dimensions. There's no layout. But it was called the tent of meeting. And I want you to notice this. What was its purpose? Notice this. Verse 7, everyone who sought the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. He said he wouldn't be in their midst, but he, he made a provision. If you want to go seek me, Go outside the camp, and there's a place where I'll meet you. Now, when Moses would go there, by the way, let me just pause there. Just, that word everyone caught my attention, and everyone who sought the Lord. But I'm thinking to myself, there's like two-plus million people. How big is this tent? You know what I think? I don't think it's that big. I don't think it was that big because I think God knew that 
the majority of the people really just wouldn't take him up on the offer. And that sounds negative, but it's kind of the reality. Hey, you can meet with me anytime you want. You're going to have to expend the effort, and it's going to take some energy and some intentionality, but I'll be there, and I'll meet with you. It's open to anyone and everyone who wants to come, but only people we read about are Joshua and Moses. Maybe I want to give them the benefit of the doubt. I like to give people the benefit of the doubt. I hope, that this, I hope there was a line to get into this bad boy, but the reality is probably not. But God made a way. You can meet with me. I'll meet with you. Well, when Moses went, it's kind of interesting. I don't know if you guys caught this. Like, when he would go out to, you know, I don't know if he, like, carried, you know, his blanket or a water bottle or whatever, and he's going, he's heading out to the tent. It's like the people would stand up like, he's doing it again. He's heading out to the tent. Hey, Moses is going to the tent. And they would all stand up and, like, watch him. Oh, there he goes. Oh, there he goes. And he, he, oh, he's in. He's in. And then they, the cloud, oh, there goes the cloud. And the cloud would, like, descend on that thing. Now, and it would say that Moses and God would talk face to face like friends. Now later we're going to say that we'll see that God would say, "No man can see my face and live." So when it says here that God is talking with Moses face to face, it's not literally; it's a figure of speech. The idea is is that there's an intimacy and a closeness. They had this very special relationship, unlike anybody else, where there was this just this interaction, this talking back and forth, and, 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 and it says when he went to do that, everybody was watching, and everybody was just in awe and inspired and like bowing down and worshiping God over there. It made me think of, there's certain people in my life that I'm kind of in awe of their walk with the Lord. Like, I can tell they've been with God. And like, do you think there's any question in the mind of those people where Moses' leadership skills were coming from? They just knew this. He spends time with God. That guy spends time with God. You can tell when people spend time with God. When the apostles, uneducated, just backwoods, fishermen guys, just absolutely stumped all the religious elite people, and it says they saw their boldness and took knowledge that they had what? They'd been with Jesus. There's no faking that. And they, they saw Moses, and they were like, the key to that guy's life is he spends time with God. Now, it would have been awesome if that would have inspired them to the point that they had themselves would go and do that, but nonetheless, they're like taking note of it. Now, this is what I want you to note. This is really interesting to me. It's this last line in verse 12, or 11, excuse me. He's not the only one in there, Moses. His assistant is in there. Now, we've been introduced to Joshua before. It was in chapter 17. Joshua was the one fighting the Amalekites while Moses was on the mountain praying. His name has popped up. Um, we see here that he's called the assistant Joshua. Um, kind of the root word there in the Hebrew carries the idea of a servant. Um, there's uh, phrases used of Joshua earlier on where it says, and Joshua obeyed Moses. He was, he was a servant, just a lowly, humble servant. He was loyal. Um, Joshua went up onto Mount Sinai with Moses, but remember Moses went up higher, and Joshua just camped and waited and just was like, no, my guy's up there, and I'm not going anywhere. I'm just going to be loyal to him, and I'm just going to wait here until he comes back down. Humble, loyal, servant warrior, and he's called the assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, so evidently his parents were, one of them was a nun. Just kidding, that's so dumb. 
So dumb. He's a young man. I like that because we know that they're about to try to go into the land, and he's probably around 40. So 40 is clearly when you are in your prime. In fact, all of your 40s probably. I'm totally making that up. He's, in a, he's a young man. But here's what I like. It says he would not depart from the tent. He would not depart from the tent. Moses would get up and leave. Joshua would just linger. In the, where? In the tent of meeting, which was for what? Where you would go to seek God. Joshua becomes the Joshua. Like there's a book named after him. If you don't know the story, if you're not, I don't like to assume that everybody knows the stories because not everybody does. He becomes the guy who replaces Moses, in a way greater than Moses because he leads them into the promised land. He becomes a, a picture and type of Jesus. He's a, one of the greatest generals that ever lived. This is one of the greatest leaders that will ever walk the planet, but we get to see him before he becomes that leader, if you would, a leader in training. And in spiritual life, you want to know where you get trained? Right here. Oh, I'm sure he was a good fighter. I'm sure he was a good organizer, all those things. But he was in the tent of meeting. That's where he lingered. Now, I was thinking about this. How cool would it be to have Moses as your mentor? Like, I, I've got a couple dudes in my life. Steve Hunter, my first youth pastor. I'll never forget him. I was 14, 15 years old. I'm this little pipsqueak, little freshman. And for whatever reason, this guy liked me. And he was this big, like, ex-bodybuilder. I say ex because he would still go to the gym, but he would just skip leg day every week. So he had chicken legs and, like, just this massive upper body. That's one of the ways I always just think about him. Just chicken legs, but upper body was huge. But he loved on me, and he, and he pointed me in the right direction. He took me to a, a leadership conference, and I'm like, why are you taking me to a leadership conference? I don't, what are you talking about? First time, he asked me to go out to have a Coke just to go talk one day after school, and I was so suspicious. I'm like, why? Am I in trouble? What, why does this guy want to meet with? This is weird. Turns out he just wanted to, like, talk to me and pour into my life and love on me. He became a real mentor for me. There's other men in my life that just kind of took me along their side. Can you imagine having Moses as your mentor? Like, the Moses as your mentor? And I was thinking about this. What do you think the greatest lesson that Joshua learned from Moses. Fighting skills, bow staff skills, sorry, organizational skills, maybe. I'll tell you the greatest lesson that Joshua learned from Moses, to be in the presence of God. Joshua, I can almost hear it. You know, you got to learn how to fight. You're going to fight. You got to learn how to lead. Here's some leadership skills, and here's how you manage people, and this is how you do this. And let me give you the key to success, Joshua. You have got to be on your face in absolute, total dependence on God because you don't know what the heck you're doing. You need God. I'll tell you what, that's where leaders, spiritually speaking, and dads that want to lead their family in the ways of the Lord, and, and moms that want to lead their family, and, and people that just want to be about the things of the kingdom of God. How do I become a leader? Well, there's all kinds of, of, of leadership stuff you can do, but you can't fake this one. This is where I look for leaders. When I was pastoring before, 
uh, in Oregon, this, my team, we would look, who comes to the prayer meetings? Who's lingering at church? Who's coming to worship? Who's, who's the ones that are pressing into the things of the Lord? Those are the guys and the women that my eyes always like, because they're going to be the ones. Listen, dads, young dads, granddads, there's a lot of things we can teach our kids and our grandkids. But the greatest thing we can teach them is how to spend time with God. And oftentimes that's the one thing that gets shoved to the side in the name of busyness and sports and work and things that are good and there's nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves. And we should teach them those things and we should teach them skills and how to do a lot of those things. But are we teaching them to read the Bible? Are we teaching them to pray? And guess how they learn? Primarily by watching you. Ooh, they're watching you. How many of you guys know your kids watch you? Yeah, so I'm driving in my truck the other day. I got um, this new car seat over here where I'm just carting JJ around all the time now, picking him up from school. So you just, it's just, this is the best. You're cruising with a three-year-old in your truck. He thinks it's like the greatest thing ever. Like when I pull up in the car, he's ticked. Like, where's the truck? But I love this because we're going up this driveway to a friend's house, and I have this really bad habit of unclipping my my seatbelt like it's a it's a efficiency thing i like to not be hindered when i pull up i want to already be ready to get out it's a time management issue so i take my seatbelt off like way before i get there and he goes daddy take your seatbelt off i was like yeah he goes take my seatbelt off and i was like <laughs> and he's like you don't want to fall out i was like you're right click and now it's like he doesn't even have to be in the truck i'm like I, that baby is on all the time now because I was just reminded, he's watching me. He's watching every move I make. And I hope he learns to put his seatbelt on. But what I hope even more is that he learns to be a man of prayer and a man of the word and a church guy. Amen? So, man, this isn't something, like I said earlier, that can be faked. Moses taught by example, and Joshua got it, and he figured this out. This is the key to success. This is the key to my ministry, whether it's whatever ministry it is, like, work, home, church, family, whatever, linger in the tent of meeting. Well, now some of the juiciest stuff in this chapter. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and I have also, excuse me, you have found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I might know you. In order to find favor in your sight, consider, too, that this is the nation, that this nation is your people. <laughs> Let's just pause there for a second. Moses is circling back to the whole issue of God saying, I'm, go- I'm not going to be among you. I'll send a representative. I'll send an angel. And, and then Moses kind of revisits that and says, you know, you say to me that I found favor in your sight and that you know my name. And then, by the way, I love this phrase, teach me your ways. Ooh, do a little concordance search on that. See how many times that pops up. Psalm 25, Psalm 86. Teach me your ways. Teach me your ways. For what reason? That I might... Um, in order that I might know you and find favor in your sight. What's he saying? Show me what it is you want, what it is you're like. Teach me how to walk in your ways because I want to know you, Lord. And I want to know you to the point where I will live in a way that honors you and so that I can just stay in your presence. And all I want to say about that little 
line right there is that I love that. To me, this is just like a little shot, just a little right into the soul of who Moses is. This is what makes Moses Moses right here. I want to know you. Teach me your ways. And in the back of my mind, I hear Paul, right? Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul cries out a prayer, that I might know him. That I might know him. And I, I just, I want that to be the prayer of my heart. God, show me your ways that I might know you so that I might live in a way that pleases you and ultimately so that your face, your goodness would shine on me. In essence, what he's doing right now is saying, God, we need your presence. We need your favor. He's going back to that issue of God saying, I'm not coming with you. Well, look at verse 14. It gets better. He said, my presence will go with you and I will give rest. I love that. God, listen, he answers his prayer. He just changed his mind, said, okay, okay. Are you guys catching a little pattern here? Moses, when he interceded, he's like, Lord, don't kill him, have mercy. Okay. Lord, you said you were going to go, but now you're not going to go. Please, you have to go with us. Okay. It's like God can't wait to be merciful, and I don't, I'm not going like, to develop a whole teaching out of this right now, and I don't really know how to say it really well, but I'm kind of blown away at this whole intercessory prayer thing. And I grapple with the sovereignty of God and yet intercessory prayer, changing God doing stuff, and yet he remains sovereign and yet he still changes lives and does stuff if we pray. He has chosen to use prayer in a powerful way. And I'm a little embarrassed at how little I employ that weapon, so to speak. But guys, massive changes are happening because one dude, one guy in the church, if you would, is praying. And God is just like, okay, mercy. Okay, grace. He's just, okay, okay. It just shows you that God's intention is he wants to be merciful. He wants to be gracious. He says in verse 14, okay, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And let me just say this, where the presence of God is, there's rest. Amen? Where the presence of God is, there's rest for your soul. Are you anxious tonight? Are you all uptight? Are you all, oh. You get into the presence of God and his love just overwhelms you and you just go, he's got me. And you can just rest. Now one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Moses said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not you going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Did you guys catch? This is such a, you could just marinate in this for so long. God says, okay, Moses, I'm going to go with you. My presence will go with you and I'm going to give you rest. And he says, if your presence does not go with us, then do not send us out of here. In other words, if you're not going with me, God, I'm not going. And then what does he say? Because, God, if your presence isn't with us, then there's nothing to distinguish us from any other people group on the face of the earth. But if your presence is with us, that's the distinguisher. That's what's going to set us apart. That's where people will know that, oh, it's not that they're awesome. God is with them. Amen? 
He says, this is the one thing that sets us apart from everybody else. And I would say this, Christian, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, did you know that the presence of God, his Holy Spirit dwells in us? And that's what sets us apart from all the rest of the world. Amen? It's not because that we're awesome. It's not because we've got it all together. It's kind of quite the opposite. We're a mess. And people look at us and go, they're a mess. But God's with them. God must be really gracious. He saved Isaiah. And Brian and Pastor Steve. Amen? God's presence. One more thought on this, and, and it actually might be a good place to stop, I'll see, because the, the next paragraph could actually be lumped into chapter 34. But let me just, before I get too far ahead of myself, I was thinking about this. Notice the way that it's worded. He says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring me up from here. And he talks about my, his presence, your presence, your presence question how is that possible you know one of the great divine non-transferable attributes of god is that he is omnipresent we're made in the likeness of god therefore some of god's attributes have been transferred to us but there are certain attributes of god that are you if you would non-transferable they are unique to god alone for example he's all-powerful he's all-knowing He's um, immutable, which means he never changes. And one of those um, non-transferable divine attributes is this. He's omnipresent, which means he's everywhere all the time at the exact same time. If you really want your brain to just tweak out, just think about God deeply. Think about that he never had a beginning. He always was and he always will be. And, and, you, and you can just, the smoke will start to come out of your ears and you'll just start twitching because like in our human mind, like everything's got a beginning. It had to have, a, but God has no beginning. How is this possible? That's a good thing because somebody once said, if God was small enough, small enough for us to figure out, he wouldn't be big enough for us to worship. And one of those just mind-boggling things about God is that he's omnipresent. He's, he's everywhere all the time at the same time. In fact, the psalmist, Psalm 139, trips out on it. He says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed uh, in, in Sheol or the place of death, you're there. If I take the wings of morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, go out to the middle of the ocean, you're there. Even there, your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold me. I say, surely darkness will cover me. And light will be, uh, and the light about me be night. But even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day, for darkness is like light to you. And before that whole thing, he's like, this kind of knowledge, I just can't get it. I can't wrap my brain around it. So my question is, back to chapter 33, what is Moses talking about? If God's everywhere all the time, if he's omnipresent, what does Moses mean? Did Moses just not know his theology about God? About, are you guys tracking with me? I think Moses understood that God is technically everywhere at the same time. So what does it mean when he says, but if your presence doesn't go with me? I think what Moses is saying is, God, we need your discernible presence. We need your face shining upon us. We need the awareness of your presence. We need to know you're in our midst. We need to be aware of that. We need to be able to discern that you're pleased with us and you're in our midst and that you're doing stuff and you're right there. Don't be far away. Amen? 
And guys, I'll tell you, this is something that I pray so often. Because we, I think, are so easily content to not have God's presence when we gather. We can easily come together, it seems, and just be like, well, we'll just do church and we'll go through the thing and maybe you'll show up and maybe you won't, but what if? What if when we gather, we're like, no, God, we need your presence. Oh, we know the theology. We know technically you're here. We're not saying you're not here. You're not, of course you are. You're omnipresent. But God, we need something of your discernible presence in our midst. We need an awareness of your presence. Oh God, we will not rest. We cannot be content unless you are with us and show yourself. You know what that's been called over the years in the church? Revival. When the presence of God just comes into the room in a sense. Oh man, I'll tell you what, there's something in my heart every time before I preach, I go, God, I don't want to get up on that stage unless you go with me. When I would do worship, I do not want to lead worship unless you go with me. You know, I was just thinking about this, not to be critical, I don't, I don't like to sound critical, but it's an observation. I got to speak at this church in Portland years ago. It was a big church. That's not a brag. It's just bigger than my church, which is not saying a lot. So they had also a guest worship leader, and this guest worship leader was literally one of the greatest musicians I think I've ever heard in my life. And he had all the songs nailed and that service was as dry as a burnt piece of white bread. And it was like so difficult. And I'm like trying, uh, trying to worship, but like it was so stale and dead in that place. And it was just like, God, we need your presence here. And I'm not trying to be critical to that young man or anything like that. But that's just what we're capable of. We can do church. We, can, we know how to put an organization together and gather people and, and have a schedule and do that. But what are we lacking? Oftentimes, the presence of God. Are you guys with me on this? How we long and need for him to just be with us and say, God, we need, and I, listen, I am not making a case for emotionalism or just emoting or like if we just get the lights just right. And look, I love good lighting and all that stuff, but we're not trying to work up some atmosphere that's phony or fake. But what I'm talking about is just something of the real presence of God coming into the room where we fall on our faces and we repent and we just know he's there and our worship is alive and real and we're doing business with God. Amen? And people come in and say, well, I don't remember what the pastor said, and the church just kind of smells a little moldy and stuff, but God is in that place. Amen? Who cares if they ever know the name Calvary Chapel or Jason or Steve or your name? Or who, who cares? What we want is when people come in our gathering to say, something weird, it's like God's in that place. That's not the pastor's job, by the way. Solely, anyway. I think it's all of our... Guys, I triple dog dare you. When you come into church to pray something along the lines of, God, I don't even want to go if your presence isn't there. I w Lord, be there in a discernible way. 
That can't happen, by the way, if you're harboring bitterness or harboring sin or anything. There has to be real repentance. God's not a game player or anything like that. So there's got to be just a coming clean before God and just a, a, a reaching out towards God. And what we're seeing all through this, and then I'm going to skip this last paragraph if you guys don't mind. It actually fits really well with, with the rest of chapter 34, almost better. So it's not like you're getting cheated or anything. It's going to continue with this thought. But what we're, gonna, what we're seeing here is that it's almost like God saying, I want you to draw close to me. I'm so impressed with Moses. He's relentless. He keeps getting answers to prayer, and he keeps asking for more. He's about to say, and God, show me your glory, too. And at that point, I keep thinking God's going to be like, really? I've not done enough for you? And it's God's like, okay, I'll give you that, too. We can be as close to God as we want to be. He's not stingy with his presence. He's not saying, no, you've had enough of me today. That's about all you get. The truth of the matter is, James 4, 8 says, if we draw near to him, he'll draw near to us. Well, how come we have to draw near to him first? I got news for you. If you have an inkling to draw near to him, he's the one drawing you to draw near to him so he can draw near to you. You can't take, yeah, you can tweet that. You can quote me on that. I can't remember. I can't even say it again, so remind me how it went later. But the point is, is that God's longing for his relationship with us to be intimate more than we want it. Isn't that the crazy thing? We should be the ones clamoring after God, and he's the one that's, in a sense, clamoring after us, just waiting. God, give us the heart of Moses. God, help us not to be so easily content to just go through the motions. Stir up in us something that says, I want the real. I want God's presence. I want to meet with him. I don't just want to read a Bible verse. I want to meet with God. I want that Bible verse to draw me to his presence. Amen? And sometimes it just takes that passion and that oomph and that intuit like that. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, intentionality. God honors it. Amen? Well, let's pray, you guys. And let's pray in a way where we're asking for this. God, when I meet with you tomorrow morning in my quiet time, I don't just want to check a box that I had my devotions. I want to meet with you, God. I want your presence to be there. When I come to church on Wednesday, on Sunday, Lord, meet us there. How, rad, well, how crazy would it be if you rolled up to church on Sunday an hour early and there was a, a floor full of people on their face before God crying out, God, when the service starts, please let your presence be here. How rad would that be? Man, what if we just went all in on this? I wonder. I wonder if God's just waiting to show his presence to those who are just looking for him. Amen? Father, we love you. We praise you. I am so impressed with Moses on this whole issue. I'm a little convicted in my own heart, but I'm also encouraged, Lord, because you said that if we draw near to you, you'll draw near to us. So, Lord, help us to apply this. Help us to apply it in our own walk, just between us and you, and then into our families, and then into our church. But Lord, don't let us just go through the motions and flitter in and flitter out. Lord, God, we want to really, truly have your favor. So teach us your ways that we might know you so that we can experience your favor. 
And God, if your presence isn't with us, we don't want to go wherever you're at, Lord. It doesn't matter if we inherit all the blessings in the world if we don't have your presence, Lord. It doesn't matter if we have the perfectly orchestrated church service if your presence isn't here. We need you. We want you. Give us the heart of Moses in this area. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.